0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Believe in Betting Chicago. My name is Joy Christopoulos on today's episode. It is part two of the Field of Dreams Chicago Sports Movie Podcast series. Love this movie so much. Got to talk about it for hours and hours and hours. And we're going to be doing a roundtable session for this second half of the episode with some buddies, a couple first timers, a couple resident guests that you might remember. First one, resident guest Mike Choi. How are you, man?
1: Joey, I've got my uh, Iowa Hawkeye t-shirt on, my White Sox hat on, I've chewed through my hot dog thoroughly, and at the risk of losing my man card, I have my box of Kleenex ready to go. So let's do this. This is our
0: hometown boy. We're just gonna all cathartically together, get together and cry. uh, Because this is what we've been doing because we've all had to watch the movie very recently. Coming up next on the pod, he winked at me once, and then I threw one in his ear. It's Andy Cameron. What's up, buddy?
2: Uh, I gotta watch him. Watch for him in the year, man. Uh, uh doing good. I'm not wearing shoes, and uh, <laughs> I'm I'm ready to have an emotional collapse. I think.
0: And you are the daddy on this pod too. You are going to be. You're going to be daddy corner on this, which we will get right. to a little bit later. Um, and then coming up, you saw him last week with the color of money. He's back for a little bit more. He's listed on the cast list of Field of Dreams as. Peanut Man number 245. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know there was a peanut man in Field of Dreams. Did he get cut out? Who knows? H. Smith, better...
3: Hello. Yes. You? Good. I, too, am not wearing shoes. A very <laughs> appropriate choice, Mr. Cameron.
0: All right. Well, our shoes are off. Our toes yes. are twinkling. And let's talk about a movie, Field of Dreams. A movie that, according to... Now, if you're not listening to this and you haven't seen it before, you might as well just stop and go watch the movie right now. But if Anyways, let's just get it out of the way. Field of Dreams. When an Iowa farmer, Ray Kinsella, hears a mysterious voice one night in his cornfield saying, if you build it, he will come, he feels the need to act. Despite taunts of lunacy, Ray builds a baseball diamond on his land, supported by his wife, Annie. Afterward, the ghosts of great players start emerging from the crops to play ball, led by shoeless Joe Jackson. But as Ray learns, this Field of Dreams is about much more than bringing former baseball greats out to play the synopsis of the film. I wanna begin with a bit of a round table real quick. Just wanna hear from personal experience. Andy, you will go first. Um, Do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Um, And if you didn't, maybe the first time that it really kind of went into your consciousness growing up.
2: I absolutely do remember when I first saw this movie. It was, uh, my mom took me to celebrate my ninth birthday. Uh, we went, yeah, we went, just the two of us, we went and saw this movie. And then afterward, we ate at a new restaurant in town called The Olive Garden. Um, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, like, the movie struck a, struck a really powerful chord with me then. And, um, just deepens even more so. Um, like on the, on the, on the rewatch last night, I definitely understood some, some lines. Like I remember the uh, PTA meeting, it's like, you know why he doesn't write books anymore because he masturbates never understood that <laughs> never got a satisfying explanation either but you know
0: now it hits so hard
2: oh my god
0: <laughs> that's so good Paige smith you remember uh, do you remember seeing the film at first or do you remember when it first kind of really came into came into your life
3: yeah i remember it um, being out for a little while before i saw it uh, i can't i feel like back then i was more into batman and you know what i mean and and, and like I was, well, we were kids, so I was more into like stuff like that, comic books and stuff. But I remember it, and I remember thinking, oh, this movie is some heavy drama, you know, because that wasn't the stuff that I was into as a kid. But then I went and saw it in the theater, and I loved it so much. I actually had, I saw it before I saw uh, Bull Durham. And I remember thinking, well, this is so good, I'm going to watch Bull Durham. And then I, of course, didn't like Bull Durham as much. It's, Bull Durham is more of a, you know, macho comedy than this one was. And, and, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I do remember seeing it in the theater and I do remember it. I, I absolutely like loved it. And, you know, Costner was such a big star back then and, and still is, I guess, but, you know, at the time it was right when he was in his wheelhouse, you know, and, and I, I, I actually, uh, I actually do remember. And, and, and I think, as I got older and started watching it on a video cassette, it actually, you know, it's one of those repeat movies that uh, the more you watch it, the more you love it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Mike, you've got some Iowa ties, man. Um, you know, how was this movie introduced to you? And you might have a completely different perspective because it's kind of more or less in your backyard.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, for me, the, you know, the movie came out in '89. I don't think it actually came on my radar until a few years later. Cause the first time I saw it, it's funny that uh, Paige had mentioned, a. I don't know if the listeners even know what a VHS tape is these days, <laughs> but yeah, it was my, uh, freshman a year of college.
0: Exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> <In Rwanda.
1: laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was, we were doing, a. you know, this is my freshman year at the university of Iowa and, um, yeah, the movie wasn't on my radar until then. And, uh, you know, one of, uh, one of the people on our floor was like, you know, I've got field of dreams on VHS. You guys want to watch it? You know, we, uh, you know, we plugged it in, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Since then, like, it's become my favorite movie of all time. Um, you know, I, I see that movie probably on average two or three times a year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I've seen that fit literally 50-plus times, like, from start to end. So, uh, yeah, that movie, you know, for, for the White Sox ties, for the, you know, the Iowa ties. Um, you know, if you guys – have you guys gotten a chance to go to Dyersville? No. You guys, wanted, I want to go so bad. You know, it's only – it's less than an hour away from uh, the University of Iowa, which is in Iowa City. By the way, I want to uh, I want to redeem Iowa City for all those people who listened to Karen, who said, you know, she gave that line, they'll go to Iowa City, see? And they'll get bored, so they'll come to... <laughs> Iowa City is an amazing college campus town, so for everyone out there, if you ever get a chance to go to Iowa City, it's a must visit. But yeah, Dyersville, man, going to the Field of Dreams, playing catch on that field. I mean, it's... I I can't think of too many things that are more like just sentimental and so nostalgic to do than than having that opportunity it's it's pretty crazy it's rep in iowa city do they do they still grow corn next to it well i know that they've kind of done a couple it's been rebought to like a, a corporation but i think they've still kind of done done it some justice but when i went um yeah it was still the, the guy who owned the field like you didn't even have to pay admission don lansing
0: don lansing never paid never asked for a dollar even though in the movie they're like you can charge twenty dollars for a ticket yeah Yeah. the guy who owns it never never ended up charging admission
3: Yeah, i I feel like i want to go when there's corn growing though you know what i mean like i I wouldn't want to go in like october
1: you know what i'm saying yeah yeah yeah. during during spring there's definitely yeah corn there's Uh, a window yeah
0: yeah, so I saw the film in nine. Well, so the film came out in 1989, and I want to say I probably I, I would only be five years old at that point, so that's a little on the young side for me. And I want to say I saw it I think in 92, 93, and I was talking to my dad about it. And I think we saw it. We were on a boat trip in Canada, and it was I think I saw it on the smallest TV possible, where you plug in the the VHS, and it was one of those prop up TVs. And remember watching it, and I'll never forget something. We'll obviously we'll get into a lot later, but you know, everyone has their own story. Everyone has their own relationship with their father. And I just remember seeing the movie and the part where he goes, uh, can you imagine that? An American, an American boy refusing to play catch with his dad. Um, I had a completely different reaction than a lot of other people did because I, I naturally played catch with my dad a lot. I was very lucky in that sense where I would play for hours and hours and hours. And I was mad at Kevin Costner's character when I first saw the movie. Um, it was this, you're an idiot. Why would you <laughs> stop playing catching? That's on you, man. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it was almost like I didn't even think that he got what he deserved. Um, so yeah, that was my experience in the movie. And then yeah, as, as things get older and obviously I think all of us uh, working in the industry, we get a little bit more of a feel of the 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 beautiful magic hand of what cinema can do. And for me, it's just to this day, it's just a movie that, Maybe there were certain films that attempted to do things like this before it came out, but after this movie, I mean, there's a couple maybe, I don't know, Forrest Gump or something like that, but this movie is just like littered with movie magic, and you can't help but watch the film without being changed in some way, or at least for a couple of seconds thinking that something is possible, and that possibility in this movie is is heaven and people coming back to relay messages onto the living and and for just a weird strange second you're kind of sort of unshackled by this whole concept of time and you can kind of sort of see on the other side and movie about second chances and just really a a film that really stands on its own and some people say that this isn't a baseball movie and I couldn't um disagree more um which I find very funny Andy what's your take on that that people don't think that it's a baseball movie I mean it, it is a baseball movie
2: and I think, but I think, in a larger sense, it's also a hero's quest, you know it's it's in that same genre, like a, a story structure like a star wars and but it's just um it I feel like it hits a little bit more powerfully with everyone just because it's rooted in something as commonplace as baseball and also like father son relationships but um it's 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 a bigger movie than it seems, and it's also it's also a lot smaller than it seems at the same time.
0: Yeah. And what's kind of interesting. And I will, I will drop a little uh, bit of the part one of this podcast that I had, I was talking to Dwyer Brown and parts of the story. And this isn't just from him. This is kind of common knowledge or a little bit of trivia is the director, Phil Alden Robinson, when he finished shooting the film was actually fairly disappointed. Um, And he felt that he actually wasn't able to capture the movie that he wanted to capture for, myriads of other reasons. And one of the major ones was that to your point, Andy, he had this idea of creating these tracking shots and these dollies and these zooms and all this like this fancy kind of movie making thing because he felt like he had to prop up the story with um, you know what I mean, with cinematic and camera camera turning sort of tricks. And he wasn't able to do it because he kind of ran out of time. But what's so funny about that is that his story, and he's a writer, I don't think he gave himself enough credit as a writer and maybe overcompensated on the technical side because the story itself is so uh simplistic. And what it and, and the leap of faith that it asks certain characters to make during this time is um is really kind of interesting and sort of stands on its own. And maybe it is a movie that just needed to just be sort of maybe this simple story you know that then turns into a road trip movie that then turns into this mystical adventure you know I mean, we'll get into all that but um it's just really a unique film like in its own in its own way and it's kind of something that i don't think can ever really be replicated again and baseball i think is just kind of the vehicle that sort of moves these pieces from one place to another um i wanted to wanted to ask you guys uh let's get into the movie here so you've got your beginning, right? The, if you build it, he will come. And right off the bat, you've got peak Costner. Um, yeah. Peak of his powers. <laughs> yes. That naive uh, sense of humor. Um, the guy who doesn't look like he should be farming. Also, doesn't sort of look like, you know, he would he would he's he's just the every man in every sense. Right. And I just kind of want to talk about this for a second of like you can't pinpoint Costner down. Can you like he's not the tough guy. He's not the hipster. Um, you know what I mean? He's not the funny man. Um, and he's also not the brooder either. But he kind of still does all those things at the same time. Hop in, Mike.
1: Well, I mean, speaking of Costner, I mean, first of all, uh, yeah, you're totally right. Peak of his powers. But is there any other actor in movie history that's more synonymous with sports movies than Kevin Costner? Mm -hmm. I mean, just baseball alone, right? uh, Field of Dreams, it's Bull Durham, it's, uh, you know, For Love of the Game. But then he also did McFarlane USA. He did Draft Day, which, uh, you know, Draft Day, eh, I don't know about that. American Flyers. I mean, yeah, right? I like that movie. All these sports movies, and the thing that I love about his uh, portrayal in this movie, in Field of Dreams, is that, at least for me, I don't know if you guys will agree, but I love how earnest he played this role. I love how much just joy and happiness he played this role. Because you know, uh, in in other movies, but even even in Bull Durham, you know, he plays kind of a more cynical, more kind of a brooding character in the majority of his films. So the fact that he was so earnest and so just. You know, just loving the sport was that I, I love that uh, his portrayal
0: page. There's that scene when, you know, if you build a he will come, he's trying to figure out who the voices are and he's up late at night with his wife and he's having this moment of questioning, you know, you know, by the time he was his father's age, his father was ancient. And that, you know, and he's 36. And
3: I, <laughs> <laughs> you no, asked the I'm, old guy about yeah, this.
0: Knife right in the heart. <laughs> the knife right in the heart for all
2: of us. No, I,
0: you know who else, who else can honestly play that scene off? To have something be that sincere of like something. He just says that this is what I need to do as crazy as it sounds. And he's walking it out and he's talking it out with his wife. And it's just really this beautiful piece of acting that I don't think a lot of people can pull off
3: yeah uh you know what he i i honestly was thinking about this i can't i and i was racking my brain thinking of of actors at that time who could have who could have played that better than him and i, I really don't like you said like he is he kind of is that like american everyman, you know and and he's so likable you know i mean he's just so like oh i i know that guy he, he lives across the street and they you know his wife and they make me cookies and they're really sweet you know what i mean and so in that regard, I, I I really think it was perfect casting. I also think just uh, what you were just talking about that uh, Amy that his the, the actor playing his wife is just so perfect for that and her energy and how bubbly she is and how you know when she fights for things it's you know you believe it and and she also brings this uh, the fun side out of him because she kind of laughs at him and she kind of you know like he's like am I crazy and she's like yeah you are but I mean if it's what you want to do then you should do it you know like that the, the two of them together, I think really bring home that, uh, sort of Americana vibe. And also that we used to, we used to be this idealistic sixties fighting force. And now we're just, you know, farmers, you know, but they, in, Mike, yeah.
1: No Paige, you, you nailed it. I think, uh, Amy Madigan, I think, uh, you know, uh, Annie, she's the MVP of this movie because yeah. Kevin Costner is a doting husband. He would have done whatever his wife said. So if Annie would have been like, no, nah, we're not building that field, end of movie. It would have ended in the first 10 minutes of the movie. So right. the fact that she was like, yeah, do it, go for it, you know, yeah,
0: and that, that's um, what made it possible. And, and I know that we're, we're four guys talking about this, so I want to be very respectful of that. But Andy, coolest wife ever? Amy Madigan. I mean, I she she's. I, I know we can maybe make the argument that she's enabling, but I don't think that she is doing that, though, right?
2: No, no, no. Because she is. Yeah, she pushes back on on Costner's character plenty of times. Just like you know, what do you want me to do if the voice calls while well, you're away? You know, and just the little undercutting French fry. You know. Um. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's 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 perfectly supportive, and I mean like. While Kevin Costner is traveling around the country, meeting like heroes from throughout his life, and doing all these amazing things, she's fending off the bank. Who's her brother? It's, <laughs> it's her side yeah. of the story is just is the the shortest end of the stick, and uh, she deserves she deserves a lot of credit. And it's also for you know just thinking. Oh, there's a resurrected baseball player outside on the lawn. Let me put on a pot of coffee just in case. You know, you've returned from the dead, you're running around, it's hot, it's muggy because it's Iowa and late summer, and you just want a hot cup of coffee to
0: just Yeah, she's she's going out with the boys. Yeah, there's something mm-hmm. so um wonderfully charming about like the the manic physicality that she brings to the role. And also, I mean, I'm I'm sort of getting the vibes of you know, obviously, I think they want to take some of the remnants of these kids from the 60s. These are kids from the 60s still and and still having that those little sparks, that little fire still kind of bubble up and flash inside of them throughout the character, which I think is a really interesting move. Hop in, Paige.
3: Well, they also give you that scene where she's like, hey, enough is enough. You can't go to Boston, you know, and then he's like, well, I, he's talking about, well, you know, I have to be at this game and she's like wait, I had a dream that you were with Terrence Mann at this game. You know what I mean? Like they have that, they do have that moment of, I I don't think this is a good idea and we need to stop. And then it was like, oh wait, no, we're supposed to do this moment. was like really, a really smart uh, writing move, I think, you know, to like kind of add that realistic, maybe we shouldn't. Oh, but it's magic, you know?
0: Yeah. Hop in Mike and then Andy.
1: Well, and then real quick to answer your guys' questions earlier of who else could have done that, you know, it would have been really interesting because, um, they had actually approached Tom Hanks for the role uh, early on because at the time, obviously, as, as, as we all know in lore, you know, uh, Costner had just come off of Bull Durham the year before. So it's kind of like, ah, is he going to do a baseball movie two years in a row? And then on top of that, luckily, he was scheduled to shoot uh, Revenge. Um, But that movie kept on getting postponed, which thankfully allowed him to do Feel the Dreams. But yeah, I mean, you know, Tom Hanks in that role, maybe, I don't know. But it would have been an interesting what if, if, uh, you know, Costner couldn't have done it and Hanks stepped in. And then coincidentally, too, as another recasting for Moonlight Graham, Jimmy uh, Stewart was actually in consideration. So to see (laughs) Tom Hanks play off of Jimmy Stewart would have been It would have been a really what if, a big what
2: if.
0: Yeah, that'd be like looking into a mirror now, basically, in terms of their (laughs) careers. Um, Andy, did you want to hop back in?
2: Yeah, I just wanted to add, um, before we get away from Amy Manigan that visual storytelling, she was given a really cool moment in the PTA meeting when she got everyone's hands to go up in the air in support of not banning the books. But all the hands and everything was just framed at the same height as the corn husks and kevin costner so she had her own kind of moment of like yeah just like arriving in 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 your special time i just thought it was just a really cool choice that the director made for that
0: that's wonderful man and i've seen the movie a thousand times and i never really thought about that i never really thought about that juxtaposition or that you know i mean that that parallel to like her story that's really cool fun trivia about the corn um, so the story goes that they get out there and the corn is at that point, about three and a half, four feet tall. And they want to obviously shoot it at maybe about Costner's eye level. And I believe Costner's about six, one, six, two. And they, apparently that summer in Iowa, they were going through the worst drought they had ever seen. And so the production company goes out and buys a $2 million insurance policy on the corn. And by doing that, they then were allowed to hire someone to come in and water the corn to get it to their liking. The only problem is they get in there, they bring it in, and they start watering all the corn. And they overwater it to the point where the corn then sprouts up to eight feet tall. (laughs) So they get out there, and Costner's trying to do that opening scene. And they can't even – like they have all their their levels shot, and they have everything, and now all of a sudden the corn is now – it's just dwarfing him they can't even see him so that's why in that beginning scene when he's walking he's actually on I believe a three or four foot platform walking through the eight foot corn that they overgrew mm-hmm. uh, on accident to make it happen so that he can actually like walk through which I guess probably helps out because then you can get the eyeline just perfectly hop in Mike
1: well and also it was so dry at the beginning of that shoot that uh, and I've still been trying to see if i could picture it in the actual film but they supposedly painted parts of the field green with dye because like it was so dried out and so even to this day, i still haven't been able to spot it but th- this day anytime there's field shots i'm trying to see if oh is that a little off green to see if that's the part of the field that they had painted green but yeah it was, it was yeah, you crazy go,
0: you go there uh, opening night and you're on like the set design team and you're like oh please dear god um please just don't make that look like it's passable you know what i mean So um, before we move on to James Earl Jones, because that is going to be, that's going to be a section on itself. And before we get to road trip time, I think a great way to set that up is to sort of talk about, maybe not just in movies, but we can also talk about in our own lives if we want to. One of the most interesting parts about this movie is the secrets. And what I mean by that is. You brought up earlier the concept of he was trying to convince his wife that he needs to go see Terrence Mann in Boston, and he doesn't really know why, but he has to. And then she begins to realize that she herself had a dream where he was at a ball game with Terrence Mann. Does not bring it up really, kind of until that moment. And I kind of want to talk about it as a cinematic device, or maybe how we just feel about our own lives of this concept of we have these instincts, right? These natural instincts that we all have in our own lives. And then we have to make decisions on whether to trust those instincts or not. And sometimes our instincts or our feelings or premonitions or intuitions, whatever you want to call them, sort of leads you down a path that, you know, maybe doesn't have you necessarily trusting what's about to happen because you don't understand it. And therefore, you don't say anything about it because you're worried about, you know, I don't know, either sounding crazy or sounding a little bit off. And a lot of this movie is, you know, Ray Kinsella's relationship with his wife who I think is feeling the same things that he's feeling but aren't willing to admit them and is trying to be the rational character, moving on to Ray and then his relationship with um, Terrence Mann, who is also beginning to kind of experience things too as well, isn't willing to really admit them. You know, even the daughter too as well, she isn't necessarily saying it out loud verbally, but she's kind of in on the game a little bit. And I just think that that's a really cool way to sort of tell a movie if everyone has a secret that they – if they said it out loud, we probably wouldn't have a movie. Um, you know what I mean? We wouldn't have conflict or tension or anything. And that's very similar to somehow, you know, life can go a little bit sometimes. Um, this isn't really setting up a question or anything like that, but Andy, do you kind of feel what I'm, what I'm saying a little bit, not just as a movie, but maybe sometimes how we deal with our relationships in life?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that, uh, that, that I've, I've, well, like you know, you move to Los Angeles to become an actor. That's following a, a little voice in your head. That's that's taken. A, that's taken a risk, and um, and and my Anne has been right there beside me and everything. And yeah, I think it's um, and at the same time, and the movie sets up people who like uh, the difference between people who do take that leap and people who don't. I mean, I would love to hear what you know some of the secrets the people in the feed store are like you know not acting on um but uh, yeah it uh, yeah it is that that leap of faith
0: yeah hop in page
3: well i was a major theme in this you know there's a lot of the father son is a big part of it but there's also that idea of like oh a a midlife crisis you know what i mean Uh, somebody's life isn't turned out the way they thought and so they buy a porsche or something you know what i mean like and in this case the guy builds a baseball field and i personally at my age you know um, a little little older than you guys not too much but i am going through some of that and i do have sort of that oh man you know what what is my comfort of life going to look like from here on out you know so the the that theme was very was was you know this time when I watched it around, I watched it last night again, and I and I that that stuck out to me more is like, oh, he's, you know, it's he's not just all just following some you know dream or trying to to make up with his father. He's also like a guy who's in a place where he's just not ha- not really happy and not really well, and wants wants to like shake things up. You know, there's that element that I think really stands out as, as to me as I've gotten a little older. You know what I mean?
0: Well, it's something that you begin to realize that when you start maybe chasing something, you're searching for answers because you kind of have no other recourse to go. Um, Mike, I want to kind of ask you, um, and I want to hear from everybody, like, you know, let's get into it. Uh, do you guys believe in dreams? I mean, what, in your opinion, what, how do dreams play a role in your life? Do, they, do you feel like that they literally play themselves out? Do you think that they are they're metaphorical? Do you think they are just purely subconscious emotional pulses? I mean, what, what is your stance on that?
1: Well, I mean, I think for me, whether we want to frame it as dreams, whether we want to frame it as, you know, a, a, any of these topics, ultimately, it's about greater forces at work. And if you're ready to take that leap of faith into believing that there are these greater forces at work. Um, in your life. You know, I mean, even think about this podcast. I mean, you know, we're doing it a day after Father's Day, you know, right? This movie is about fathers and sons.
2: Uh, you know, I mean, we're not
1: totally online, but it's like last year was the 30th anniversary of Field of Dreams. Last year was the 100th anniversary of the Black Sox scandal. So, you know, it's this idea that like, you know, things are kind of lining up. And, you know, I, you know, when I was thinking about like a story, I could tell um, how it pertains to this podcast, as well as like this idea of greater forces at work, um, you know, uh, was lucky enough to go to spring training this year. And you guys listening won't be able to see it, but I caught a foul ball. First time of my life catching a foul ball. It was a White Sox Cubs game. And there happened to be a little kid sitting by me. So kind of with the crowd's peer pressure saying, give the ball to the kid, give the ball to the kid. I gave the ball to the kid, right? So as a couple innings pass, I'm starting to feel really sorry for myself. Cause I'm like, you know, when am I ever gonna catch a foul ball again? Like, you know, the odds of that are astronomical. Like I think to catch a foul ball is like one in like 5,000 or something like that. So I'm I, like, as stupid as it sounds, like I'm really starting to feel sorry for myself. Three innings later, another foul ball gets popped up. This is the foul ball that I caught was foul ball number two. Oh, and wow. I swear that's to good. God, swear to God. And that, like, I looked that up. That's like one in like 300,000 uh, probability of that happening. So just kind of that idea that like, you know, believing in karma, believing in bigger powers, believing in, you know, kind of doing quote unquote the right thing, like that'll pay off in the end. So and that was that was like to this, you know, that was only a few months ago now, but it seems like forever ago. But that was just something like like whoa, like there there are some bigger things that play out there. Page I- I-
3: I envisioned the other kid sitting near you and look- looking up at you with big doe eyes. And you're like, not this one, kid. This one's mine.
1: <laughs> no, it was funny. Like the crowd was like equally like, that's your ball. That was meant to be. like everyone, everyone's like giving me high fives and people are oh, like wow. having me touch their 50, 50 raffle tickets for good luck. And yeah, it, was, it was pretty amazing.
0: <laughs> Mike's got another foul ball. I shall go claim my prize. You, wait, wait, what? Where were you going? Why are they, they're cheering for him. Uh, Andy, real quick, your thought, on, your thought on dreams and just how they play a role in your life. And they, they, they could and they could not. That's totally I crazy. mean,
2: they absolutely have. And, and this isn't exactly uh, my story, but um, my wife, Anne, like, well, after we had our child uh, seven months ago, uh, things kind of opened up for her in a really big way. And last week, this, a, a week ago today, she launched a business as a medium. So she is literally taking in voices and help from beyond, uh, and wow. uh, it's um, it's been quite quite the trip to 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 witness. And uh, yeah, yeah,
0: is once the door open, uh, the the wind, the draft, everything starts flying in a little bit.
2: I mean, you know, it, we're we're all we're all quite safe and everything. Um, yeah, there's, there, I have I have no concern of like, you know, I'm going to look in my kid's crib and his head's going to be spinning around, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but common it's common
0: concern uh, for early fathers. That's what I've been told. Yeah,
2: he he does go into an Incredibles Jack Jack mode on occasion, but that's just I I think that's gas. <laughs>
0: yeah, I did. <think> <laughs> uh, uh, Page uh, dreams in your life mean anything? Not much, or
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Again, uh, something that's been on my mind a lot lately. I think you know all of us have been stuck in our apartments or houses for so long that, that you know I, I've talked to a lot of people about this, and a lot of people are going through that. I've had a lot of time to sit with myself and think about you know the the dreams and the choices I've had, and and what I've kind of what I've kind of thought about it a lot is that the dreams that I had when I was twenty years old aren't necessarily any different than what I have now. I just have a different way of processing it and thinking about like, well, what does that dream actually mean? You know what I mean? I mean, does it have to be a certain way that it's been envisioned or can you, can you live out this dream that you've always had uh, in a, in your own way? Does that make sense? Like, it, yeah,
0: like I, I don't think, uh, you know, obviously the it's a movie that we're talking about here. So sometimes like voices and dreams like that are taken Literally, where that literal scenario plays itself out in real life. And I think that's yeah. for storytelling purposes. I don't know if that necessarily happens in real life. I think what you're saying is, you know, there are or maybe they could be symbols or they could be the, the feeling within the dream that you're having or yeah. some sort of detail or something that maybe opens up a window to a road or possibility that you weren't necessarily seeing before. And then Exa- it's kind of up to you to, to see if you want to go forward with it.
3: Exactly. It's like okay, I don't, I don't have a mansion in the hills or a, a, a ranch in Montana, but, but I do have my own little production company. I get to make my own stuff, and I get to work with my friends. And I, I look at it. I'm like, just because I don't have a big wallet with cash pouring out of it, and I, you know, I'm not at crazy Hollywood parties or something, doesn't mean that I'm not living my dream exactly how it was supposed to be lived. Do you know what I mean? Well, I, I, I mean it's still a part of my life.
0: There's the be careful what you wish for, too, where obviously, uh, Paige, you're, you're a super talented dude. So one day, you know, if you were to have amazing success with your production company and then you're, you you know, you're kind of like, you know, you're you're kibitzing and you're just kind of moaning or bitching about how things were easier when it was so little. Uh, right. You know what I'm saying so.
3: Yeah, little, absolutely.
0: Kind of the end there. Uh, Mike, hop in.
1: Oh, no, I, I was oh. just it's it's interesting too. I just you know what Paige was saying, right? Like everyone's dream is different to say like, you know, that, that, that one person should equate to another person. Is is, you know, that's a little misleading, right? So like, yeah, kudos to Paige and, you know, Andy as well. First, congratulations on your child. Um, that's, that's amazing. And you have probably a different perspective, right? Because I think for all of us uh, up at least up until Andy had his uh, child, like, right, we looked at it as the son in the situation. Now Andy's in a situation where he can approach this movie as the father and how that, how whatever those differences may be in terms of how he contextualizes the movie.
0: Yeah, Andy, did it feel um, different watching it as a dad? I mean, it's not necessarily a pro dad film. Uh, you know what I mean? There's a lot of healing in the end there. But did you did you look at it at all and from a different angle now that you are a daddy?
2: Well, I've always uh, had, uh, since he was born, I've had soft eyes out for the moment that I make my son say, fuck off to me, you know. uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it did. I mean, because like, uh, like, like I would, I would play catch with my dad, but my dad was never, um, my dad never played baseball. He didn't, he didn't really have a very good windup. He sort of pushed the ball with a little bit of hop. And, you (laughs) know, so, uh, and, and I know that. um, Ah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have some sort of ritual with my son and it's it's there's and there's but there is gonna be something that, that hey he he moves on, he moves away for and that's all part of his development and it's all gonna kind of come back around again.
0: So Yeah, I, I think like it doesn't have to be playing catch, right? I think sure. Like, I just remember playing catch with my dad was there was something very performative about it in a positive way of not only is my dad engaging in the same activities me but I can do the same activity as my dad that's kind of cool um you know there is a little bit of a hey watch what I can do but there is that sort of back and forth so it doesn't really matter whether you're putting together a puzzle or drawing a painting or whatever that is I think that there's kind of that that give and take that I think you can you can bond over anything doesn't have to be and Andy, you still got, you still can bring the heat, man. You can still throw. So, I mean, not, <laughs> thank you. Thank I'm you. I'm not worried about you.
3: He's got a mean underhand. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Where'd that come from? It just burned all the worms right off the ground. My God. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our word, uh, word from our sponsor, and then we're going to do the second half of our Field the Dreams sports movie pod. But first, let's talk about betonline.ag that's right there's no shortage of action going on at betonline.ag so why aren't you on that website right now sports is slowly making its way back like ufc boxing nascar soccer even golf they're all leading the way and betonline.ag has all the best odds and lines for the upcoming games and matchups So if you're looking for something else other than sports, don't worry. We've got you covered because there's hundreds of live casino games, poker tournaments, and all the best props in the business. So get out your mobile device right now and go to betonline.ag to join up. And we will give you a free welcome bonus just so you can start playing today. Betonline.ag, your online wagering experts. Back to the pod, feel the dreams. And I think it's about this time that we get on the road. We do a little road tripping right now. I love a road trip. I love a montage. Road trip montage is fantastic. Now, this kind of isn't... I mean, James, score, James Horner's score is incredible, iconic, um, something that I think it went on to be copied for 10 to 15 years, and he went on to do some amazing films. But they do fit some nice classic rock jams um, in there that really helps you kind of get on the road, get in the van. Uh, you're not eating. You're only stopping to go pee. Um, and it's a good time. And it's interesting because the film is an amazing film, but it probably could have suffered from perhaps maybe, maybe languishing in the same spot in the same quiet moments over and over again. And it gives a kind of a nice little extra juice there right in the middle.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, again, once again, I think, uh, I think the director Robinson wanted uh, another composer. So it's like, it's funny that this movie is like, filled with, quote-unquote, B-teamers. And yet, like, I couldn't imagine this movie without those, quote-unquote, B-team players in this film, whether it's, you know, Horner with the soundtrack or Costner, you know, as, as uh, Ray Kinsella. But, um, yeah, you know, it's funny with that road trip, too, that, um, you know, when they go to Minnesota, I don't think people... It's, this movie is also a time travel movie and you never really hear that brought up about Field of Dreams. He travels back to 1972 when he goes to Chisholm to finally meet Moonlight Graham. So uh, there's so many different aspects of this movie. That, yeah, road trip movie, baseball movie you know it's a, it's a, it's a fairy tale. I mean, this is a fairy tale disguised as a sports movie to some degree as well. so yeah, just so many different components flying at you.
0: yeah, because then somehow a character from nineteen seventy two is allowed into the nineteen eighty nine world to walk freely amongst them until he gets to the specific place where the 1918-1919 players were you know what I mean or so yeah. wait no, it's not even nineteen seventy two this would be this would be moonlight Graham from nineteen fifty some nineteen fifty two Yeah, a lot of 72 uh, character into 89 to go back and play with the 1919 White Sox. Um,
1: Like all time travel movies. Don't try to figure it out because it'll blow your brains.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I got my program program out trying to do the scorecard right now. And it just it looks it looks like absolute algebra right now. Um, Let's get into James Earl Jones. His character, Terrence Mann. A lot to unpack here, but Paige, I just want you to kind of uh, just kind of maybe open us up with your general your general thoughts on James Earl Jones's performance in this movie.
3: Well, uh, he, you know his performance is very James Earl Jones. I mean, especially when you're first introduced to him, you know his, his arc obviously is a guy who was once very idealistic and then has become embittered by the world. So when you first when you first meet up with him, he's just like, "Who the hell are you?" you know and it's just so he's so gruff and then and then they and then to his credit, as the as the character is unveiled to us, you know, and you really kind of get to see, the real inside of the the man and the goodness and the tenderness and the, the, you know, the pacifist in him, you know, James Earl Jones can go from gruff and angry and get the hell out of here to the most kind, like God grandfather, like, you know, uh, essence that you can possibly come up with. And I, I think James Earl Jones is like uh,
2: the perfect choice.
0: Yeah. Hop in, Andy.
2: Absolutely. Just the, yeah, the way he goes from, threatening it's like i'm gonna beat you with a crowbar until you leave me alone They're like some coffee some cookies or it just you know it just uh, when it, i just the smile on his face. what he's like oh god you're from the 60s and kevin oh, costner's really. just taking it back like well yeah and then just, <laughs> just pl- and playing with those with those with those mood shifts dope. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh yeah he um uh uh he's he's just a master and it's so so fun to watch in this movie hop in mike and then page
1: i mean is there a better voice in all of film than james earl jones voice i mean mm. so iconic right i mean whether it's darth vader whether it's you know uh musafa in the lion king right like it's like there's so many and then also like he played that role in another baseball movie the sand he was mr myrtle you know he owned the beast so um what? yeah it's yeah it's it's you know he was perfect and and the crazy thing it was was that right like terrence mann is basically uh, a pseudonym for uh, jd salinger right it was like literally it was it was based on jd salinger and the production didn't want to have his name be associated with the film because of fear of lawsuits that jd salinger might sue them depending on how he was depicted so i mean again so many different things like james earl jones would not have been cast obviously if it was meant to be jd salinger so like so many things happened that just made this movie like it's yeah it's just yeah it's 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 forces coming together man page you want to hop in
3: yeah well you know what it was mike basically got into what i was going to talk about is that terrence Mann was supposed to be jd salinger and and there there was uh for you know, decades, people would go to J.D. Salinger's house and wait outside of his house. And he would, he didn't want any part of it. He would just be like, I, I, I don't have the answers for you, you know, because he was like a troubled guy. He was a war veteran. And he's like, look, I wrote this book, everybody, it, it, you know, all these young people think that I'm some kind of prophet, and I'm just, I, I'm not interested. And they really, I mean, it, when you watch, you know, Field the Dreams, that's exactly what Terrence Mann is right from the get go. You know, he's, He's that guy who's like, look, I don't have the answers. Get out of here. This is not the 60s. But then, you know, obviously he becomes that guy. Exactly that guy, you know. (laughs) Hop in, Andy. Uh,
2: Yeah, I I was just going to add that, like, with the B-team thoughts of, like, James Earl Jones had to be convinced to do this movie by his wife. Um, You know, so, yeah, just another, you know, thank, thank God that happened.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, and the the interesting thing about his character too, as well, is it's actually quoted in the movie of why he stopped writing. Uh, "Quote: The public had become either too apathetic or too extreme." Um, that, I, I don't I don't hear any similarities to that uh, <laughs> to perhaps what we're experiencing right now by <laughs> stretch of the imagination. But yeah, that is kind of an interesting, um, you know, quandary, right, with creative people that especially have an impact on a larger society where that larger society begins to try and mold and shape and conjure up what they exactly particularly want from that artist at a particular time and it must be um paralyzing or arresting or maybe it would and that's kind of what's going on right is that does did the Terrence man character ever really want to stop writing or did he have to stop writing because Um, his method of creativity was tainted and altered by people that were trying to get him to either um, Speak for them or or enlighten them or yeah, as you said Paige uh, Solve all their problems where he quit and that made him probably more angry than anything else because as we see he comes kind of comes back into the fold a little bit and the softness in his character Tribute to James Earl Jones really kind of comes into play when he starts interviewing people about Moonlight Graham, getting back, writing notes down on that notepad again, uh, you know, just kind of sort of getting back in the game a little bit. And it is a sort of interesting sort of C story about how we take our celebrities and just grind them into dust until they just don't want to do it anymore. Go ahead, Page.
3: I uh, the, all these points. I mean, I feel like you really brought it home. I just uh, before we get off the road trip thing, I really, uh, I really thought I, I really wanted to talk to you guys about how the old baseball, you know, like old being the '80s when they go to the ballpark and they order two hot dogs and two beers and the guy's like, that'll be seven bucks. <laughs> you, <know laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like, you can't even get a hot dog for seven bucks now. That I means that, that e- each beer was like two fifty, and the hot dogs are a dollar each. You know? I
0: know, look, this is a movie about, uh, ghosts and dads and ballplayers that are a hundred years old and I'm being unable to leave certain grounds for the most unrealistic part of this movie. Is that fucking two beers and two hot dogs? I can take you four out right now and buy you guys dinner for like a $20 bill. It's just, just, I don't understand. Andy and the mic.
2: Also, why? When like, you know, it's like, what do you want? No, what do you want? You know, the the three men behind that concession stand were standing so close together. They are all shoulder to shoulder. It makes no sense. <laughs> other that that is just a hilarious. <laughs> I don't know, it's just it's so odd. And yeah. yeah, and they had the
0: beers and the they had the beers and the hot dogs already poured so I yeah. don't know if there was some sort of assembly line situation that they had just messed up with but no I mean that movie that part still just absolutely cracks me up. So perfectly like set up and uh character revealing and funny and then just kind of this breaking of the ice later moment um hop in mike
1: well, no, I'm continuing Andy's point about uh, James Earl Jones' wife kind of urging him to do this film. Uh, a, a popular story that he always tells about when his wife told him to do the role was that, well, but she also said that, like, they'll never, ever keep that monologue, the baseball monologue, because it's just too long. That, that, you know, feature film, that's ne- never going to it. That's going to hit the cutting room floor. And I'm just like, could you imagine ending that movie with anything But that baseball monologue, I mean, it's like so iconic, like it's so iconic. And um, yeah, I mean, and also like with the James Earl Jones thing, right, or the Terrence Mann thing, actually, just like, yeah, the weight of everyone thinking that you are responsible for speaking for a country, for speaking for a generation. I mean, literally, Kevin Costner on that road trip tells uh, Terrence Mann that the whole reason I stopped playing baseball with my dad stopped playing catch with my dad was because I read the boat rocker you know so that <laughs> literally was why he stopped so it's just yeah this weight of like everyone thinking everything you say like, I yeah, I couldn't imagine. I mean, obviously, I'll never be in a position to know what that feels like. But just having the literal weight of the world on your shoulders with every word you put out there. It's like, yeah, I couldn't imagine what that stress and pressure would be like.
0: Well, yeah. And to rise to fame and think for half a second that you're doing some good, and then maybe somewhere along the way, feeling the guilt of like, did I do something wrong with the way that I wrote and the way that I expressed myself? And did I actually end up uh, hurting people? And that's never what I intended. And then all the the cynicism that comes with, you know, humans and interactions in general, because he felt like the people betrayed him. So he isolates himself off and, you know, he won't see anybody. Hop in, Andy. I
2: was going to say, yeah, not, not just like, you know, his fans like kind of turning on him, but like the, the world itself, like when when what he, what he, he's, when he's venting at Fenway, you know, he talks about they, they reelected Nixon, like, you know, and it's like, it, like all of, all of this passion, all this life's work was kind of for naught. seems.
0: It's not like we're going through any of that right now. No, um, you know what I mean. It just—it's it, it, the part of the movie that—it's part of the movie that just doesn't age that great. I mean, I don't know. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could relate right now, but uh, but we can't. Um, let's move on to uh, let's move on to Burt. Let's move on to Burt Lancaster. Oh yeah. Um, and I I think a really amazing uh, movie move is to bring in the heavy hitter. Um, amazing actor, obviously similarly spoofed in Wayne's World 2 uh, when he's at the gas station and he's trying to find the the second Presbyterian church on Gordon Street. And the guy starts the monologue and he stops him and he goes, wait a second, we can do better than this. Uh, I I'm sorry, but, and then brings in Charlton Heston to just deliver this one great <laughs> moment. That is Burt Lancaster in this movie. Um, and... I think really like is it not just a great performance, but you've got these little steps, right? Because for some people that don't enjoy watching baseball but still find it to be a very powerful film, you kind of need those moments, right? And for Bert, this is the setup before the big monologue with James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones does baseball and you know it's marked the time in our society. But for Bert, that's such a personal story, the Moonlight Graham story of what his, what his wish is in life. And his wish is just just like anybody when they play sports to be out there on a beautiful sunny day and just and just play that game and all the little details of, you know, whatever, rolling around in the mud, in the grass, and getting dirty, and, um, and hanging out. And the dude just really knocks it out of the park. And I have to think that I love Jimmy Stewart, but that would have been different, no? I mean, that would have been a different performance. Um, Paige, you texted us last night when you were watching it. I want to hear your thoughts first on it.
3: Well, I, I grew up, uh, well, as I, you know, I watched a lot of movies in my day, obviously. And, um, I loved Burt Lancaster growing up. He was in a lot of great movies that nobody's ever, you know, not nobody, but a lot of people nowadays haven't even seen. And, um, uh, he, what you were talking about, like he, he, his, basically his role in the film is to be the guy who he had this dream of playing baseball and it didn't come true but that meant that he became this great man and, you know, became a doctor and, and changed the lives of so many people. And he even mentions that he says, if I only could have been a doctor for five minutes, that would have been a tragedy, you know? And they gave that uh, that really important part of the story to this big toothy grinned grandfather looking classic actor you know what i mean like from 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 the days of hollywood's past who who couldn't hall have
0: fame, hall of fame winker too yeah man Wink
3: couldn't his his the, and and he and by the way uh, some people when they as they age they don't look so good you know burt lancaster <laughs> he was a handsome 85 year old man i mean he looked amazing in that film
0: yeah incredible hop in mike please
1: Oh, no. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, Paige nailed it. Like, you know, it's this movie is like living poetry, right? I mean, his speech, right, about giving the pitcher a wink, right? So that, you know, he thinks, you know, something that he doesn't. I mean, that's poetry. When Shoeless Joe talks about like, I would have played for nothing in the first scene that he's in, it's poetry. Obviously, James Earl Jones' speech is poetry. Even, you know, Annie's speech in the school PTA meeting, it's, it's poetry. So yeah, it's just like, you know, it it's so in Burt Lancaster is so synonymous with this movie. Like I just, I can't imagine again, I'm sure there would have been other actors who would have done it, uh, you know, decently, but it's just like that. Think of anybody else, but Burt Lancaster playing Moonlight Graham, who coincidentally like doing the research, I didn't know that Moonlight Graham was a real person. They yeah. based that on a real person, and those uh, all the facts that uh, when James Earl Jones was interviewing, like the town folk in the bar, like they were using real facts. And then the obituary, I believe, was word for word, um, uh, in, in regards to Moonlight Graham. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's it's amazing backstory, like all the way around on this.
0: Yeah, hop in, Andy.
2: Yeah, it was. Yeah, I was. Uh, Mike, Mike already said a word for word obituary that they read, and um, something that's kind of cool too is that the. The actress who um, uh, played played the woman at the newspaper, Ann Seymour, she was in Bro- uh, James Earl Jones' Broadway debut, and uh, so they had this they had this little moment where it's like, you know, his yeah, you know, James Earl says you're a good writer, and she's like, you are too. A little pat on the shoulder. It's this very sweet little character moment that you usually don't get from like a small role like that. But, like, it's, that was almost like a Shoeless Joe's, like, hey, rookie, you know, you were good. Like, that, that, that real life in this movie veteran, just uh, giving props as someone who they saw start out. But, I mean, yeah, Burt Lancaster's arc, the, the Moonlight Graham arc, is my absolute favorite thing in this movie. It's-
0: um, and uh, fun trivia, trivia time. The uh, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name who was hired, so forgive me. I guess you'll just have to Google it up afterwards. But the person that they brought on to coach all the players, uh, the baseball coach, he had worked as uh, a manager for USC for many years and then eventually brought on, um, I do remember this guy's name, a man named Don Buford, who was a former player as well. And they were kind of the on-site coaches of all the players on the field. And about halfway through shooting, the director, Phil Alden Robinson, was having a conversation with the – with the manager, USC manager, and sort of asking him about his career. And then the manager goes on to tell the story about how he was drafted. He was in the minors. He got called up to the big leagues. He played one game. He broke his back in the game in a collision, and then it ended his career and then went on to become a manager for the next 20 to 25 years. And the director hears the story, and he kind of just goes, you know, holy shit, you're Moonlight Graham, you know? And the guy just kind of smiles and walks away. And then the director asked him, you know what I mean? Like, would you would you have been good? Would you have made it? You know what I mean? And Or like, you know, would you like to go back and see what you could have done? And he had that sort of smile of like, yeah, like I think I would have been pretty good. And so like all these different little things are not just happening like behind the scenes, but are being put on camera about people just kind of brushing, brushing their dreams. You know what I mean? Like what is what does that dream mean to you? Like I like to play a game where I like to compare a moment in my life to whether nine-year-old Joey would think it was cool. And if nine-year-old Joey was like, Oh, you're going to be on a, a TV set one day to be on a TV show. He would think that that would be pretty cool. You know what I mean? But then, you know, 30 something, Joey's just like, yeah, I was on set, but you know, I only did one episode and I didn't do any, more, you know what I mean? I only had so many, you know, so it's like, I get that, you know, the devil's in the details, right? But at the same time, it's kind of, you know, I think a lot of people have gotten a chance to experience and maybe taste and touch their dreams a lot more than they probably give themselves credit for. And think of those things as probably more mistakes in their life than maybe them actually fulfilling, you know, whatever their ten year old self might have been dreaming to become. Hop in, Mike.
1: Well, speaking about the details, and now I was wondering, I have actually a question for you guys. Um you know, now that we're kind of talking about the real-life baseball behind this movie, um, do you guys find in your research, if they used any CGI, I'm assuming this was all practical, right? Because there's two instances where I'm like, either that's CGI or they put a lot on the line because, you know, in that in that introductory scene with Shoeless Joe when he's like, can you hit the curve? And then he hits the ball right back at Coster, It's the ball bag, that's right? Real. That's real, right? And then also the timing that it took um, in that last scene where Mark walks across the field right before a pitch and the thing i keep thinking about every time i see those two scenes it's like if if the shooting of those two scenes go wrong you know you have costner out for like a couple of weeks plus you have you know busfield out for a couple of weeks plus if you beat him in the head you know so like that I, i in, in the research, I, I was like, man, like I'm assuming everything's practical, but like those are two big chances to take for those two instances.
0: I don't know for sure, but what it seems like is I know for a fact that the that is Ray Liotta hitting. He tries to throw in the ball and then it goes and hits the bag and you see him fall down. They do cut back to Ray Liotta and then cut back to Costner when he goes, yeah, you can hit the curve. So my guess is that everything of that moment is completely natural and real they probably cut immediately and then they're like, that's amazing. Let's go back with you on the ground. And then you can get up and maybe ad lib that line, the curve, you know? And, oh yeah. You can hit the hurt curve. Hop in page.
3: Yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, I don't think CGI was really anything then. I, I yeah, think right? they had to be practical, I, you know, really Jurassic park, th- that era kind of, a few years later is when they started using that uh, more and more. So I was always wondering how they, how they make them disappear when they're walking into the corn, you know what I mean? Because you can't the the corn's going to move, so you can't you can't like do a double shot at, at, mm. and have and have it all line up right. You know, so I I've always wondered how that's that's movie magic that I have never figured out is how <laughs> they they have that panning shot of when when Ray leaves the movie for the last time and he walks really deep into the corn and he disappears going into it. That kind of that last hero shot of him, like how the hell do they do that? It's it's really beautiful. It really really works. Page, he's a ghost. Uh, oh right right. right. <laughs> Oh, if it's anybody could do it, Ray can do it.
1: It's all. You know real. why he
0: can disappear into the corn <laughs> because he masturbates.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> obvious, <laughs> obvious. Um, so let's—I uh, mean, let's let's get into it. Let's get into the final scene. Um, God, really, like this crazy—not quite like a three-act play, but there's just this—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a finale that is three sections, each of them insanely classic iconic um you know people reciting them word for word and the first one is uh the first one is the ball game in timothy busfield with uh, my apologies to the bus we haven't really brought him up yet uh timothy bummerfield coming in just laying on (laughs) white hot white hot tight ass uh all across the place um Threatening to I mean, I can't really figure out that he's trying to he's trying to protect his sister, but he's trying to foreclose on the house. So in theory, he's trying to like actually kick them out. I mean, where do we stand on Timothy Busfield on this one? And you know, don't hold back on me.
2: I think he uh he's he's doing a lot to uh yeah, it, uh that double-edged sort of protect and destroy. Um, trying to it's like, look what you're doing to your kid, and then he throws her off the bleachers. Um it's uh it's it's a uh, everybody everybody's walking a fine line making a lot of you know there's a lot of debate with everyone like do i go with this man trying to kidnap me do i build this baseball field um timothy busfield is is walking uh that line between monster and well i mean i i guess i understand his motivations um apparently the uh the author of the book um the the real the real Kinsella, was really dissatisfied. He thought his character was not villainous enough. Um, I mean,
0: let's be real. I mean, we all know that when you want to make a point about someone else's child, you pick up the child and shake him furiously in the air. (laughs) Uh, We we all know that that's one of the moves. I mean, maybe not, maybe not tough enough. Go ahead, Paige.
3: Well, I was just, I was, you know, Timothy Busfield is great casting that that character is so important because it, it, it is the the side of the story of the, you know, the reason that they can't see the ballplayers. Is that they the, their lives? They have lost the magic of their youth, and the, they've lost their their the belief, you know. And when uh, she is, her, and, you know, he potentially almost kills his own, you know, niece, and then this doctor comes out of the ether and saves her, and then all of a sudden, you know, with that with that that moment, brings back, you know, this this like understanding of what's really important you know and then all of a sudden he can see the ball players, and i you know and timothy busfield yeah does have that really annoying arc for a minute but then when he when he's brought back into the fold and he sees the love and the magic again and it's like do not sell this field sell ray, fine, do, ray. I, I i i love that moment and i think yeah he he just he brings he really brings a full circle right there
0: dipped in the waters and yeah now i'm kind of thinking about it i sort of am glad that he had a little bit of blood pumping in his veins and wasn't the total full-on villain, right? Um, because, and it's an interesting quote, I'm probably going to have to paraphrase it because I don't remember it word for word in Dwyer Brown's book, if you build it. And for some people this movie can be fairly polarizing and it's kind of like you either, you know, you either love this movie and you cry your eyes out in the end or there's some people that maybe watched it a little bit too late in life or, maybe find it a little hokey or a little cheesy or whatever. And he kind of put it best where the movie's kind of set up like that a little bit, where, you know, the, the movie is kind of divided between the group of, there's the Rays, the Annies, and the Terrences and then there's Mark. And all of them at one point or another sort of come to the light or the reali- realization of the power of what's possible. But, you know, Ray is kind of the first one, and he's in the Mark group in the beginning. You know, he's just like Mark. And he slowly moves over to that other place of believing in what's possible. And Annie's kind of sort of there, comes with. Terrence is there, kind of sort of then comes with. And Mark's on the other side is that as that the other opposite, who eventually is the last one that finally comes to the other side. And that's how he kind of sort of described how people felt about the movie. Go ahead, Mike.
1: Well I am going to counter. I don't think Mark is a villain at all. I mean, to Andy's point, yeah, maybe they probably should have wrote him more villainous because of the fact that like he's basically a stand-in for reality, right? So if you're if if, if we were to try to look at this movie in terms of quote-unquote reality, he's seeing his brother-in-law, right? build a baseball field and then just sit there watching nothing, right? Like Joey, if I came over and you were building a Sybaris in your living room, (laughs) for all the listeners out there, Sybaris used to be this uh, (laughs) uh, resort type place where they would build jacuzzis in the middle of your hotel room. If you were building a Sybaris in your apartment, Joey, and you were just sitting there standing, I'd be like, Joey, man, We got, we got to get you some help. We got to get you some big time help, right? So it's like he, I mean, if you're looking at the lens of like somebody who's looking at this, like realistically, like, yeah, he's like, dude, you're going to ruin your life and I'm trying to help you. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure however the finances work, Mark was going to make a buck out of it. True, true. Definitely. But like from a, yeah, but from a reality standpoint, yeah, of course he's like, you guys are crazy. So, I mean, I don't, I don't fault Mark at all, actually.
3: Do not sell your Sybaris, Joey. Do not sell your Sybaris.
1: Where
2: did all those ballplayers come from? In the Sybaris.
0: (laughs) Andy, are you more of a man that reads contracts or more of a man that just sits on a bench and stares at grass? Uh, You know, tell me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the Google search for Sybaris is going to go up tenfold after this podcast.
0: No, that's a great point. And I I think uh, we are a bit on the same page of you know uh I, I i but i liked that though he is the reality check um and and honestly you know he's a downer the whole movie you're on this magical wild ride of you think anything is possible and every what fifth or sixth scene it's kind of like oh yeah like they're completely delinquent on their bills right now like yeah, we asked oh. the bank if we could miss a payment or two like oh what did the bank say uh,
3: there's all those suits there's all those suits hanging out in their kitchen while she's on the phone you know
0: yeah exactly and um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he shows up and he's got this uh, – he shows up, he interrupts the game, which is a really funny moment. They start having this argument. There's the big, like, there's the line drawn in the sand, the do or die. You're going to sign the contract. Um, and then this James Earl Jones uh, little monologue shows up. Just this tiny little monologue, uh, you know, nobody, nobody quite remembers uh, exactly. But I can't believe that they actually thought about cutting it out of the movie, which is insane. And I guess the story goes is that he did it three times. And the second take, I think, is the one that they actually used in the movie. And the second take is actually probably the lowest um, in terms of like affectation and bellowing. And, and James Earl Jones was like, hey, let me just try and, like what you've just written is really beautiful. Let me just try and just read it. Let me just read it and let's see what happens. And that's the one they end up taking the movie. I guess there's another one that's just maybe a little bit more like maximus in the middle of rome gladiator style kind of like (laughs) presentation of it which i would absolutely die to hear one time yeah hell yeah um but it's incredible and it's handed to a, a monologue master and you know even you know look i love baseball you know what i mean and i can talk all day long about the nuances of the game and how much i love it and why it's special for me personally and the details and the chess and all that other stuff but You know, at the end of the day, that is true that, you know, as we evolve in this place that we call America and try and change, um, there are a few constants, right? And it's nice when you can find those constants being wholesome and actually um, something that we can be proud of, you know, because obviously I think we're working through some things right now that have probably been constant in our country that we're not proud of right now. And... You know, even if you like baseball or not, it's kind of true, right? Like, it's just the American sport that has continued to move on through era and different era. And there's been decades where people hate baseball. There's been decades where people think it's boring. There's been a couple of years where people are like, baseball's back, baby. You know what I mean? But it just keeps, uh, keeps on trucking. Um, just, you know, just a, quick little, just a quick little note out to the, uh, the owners and the uh, MLB Players Union right now, trying to hammer out the final deals of this uh, contract right now. But um, just truly an incredible monologue. Go ahead, Mike.
1: Well, I have a I have a hypothetical for you guys. Is Terrence Mann actually a villain in the eyes of Karen, the daughter? Because it's actually her speech. She starts that speech and James Earl Jones kind of comes in and co-ops it and takes takes off with it. But she's the one who starts the, uh, you know, they're going to go to Iowa City. They're going to think it's boring. So then they're going to come here. She's the one who starts it off. And then James Earl Jones just just kind of mansplains his way into the monologue yes
0: yeah, that's sort of the thing where like if the bass player from my Sharona came up with the bass line and he like called it like my Corona and then the one guy's just like yeah kind of like my Sharona a little bit more and then he gets all the credit you're kind of just sort of without oh, that happen go ahead Andy
2: that's why that's why writing is rewriting you know Terrence Mann says thanks for the first draft kid here's your finished manuscript <laughs>
0: to expound and to not to give you a line reading, little girl, maybe what you're trying to say is something, uh, maybe along these lines, baseball. (laughs) And, uh, let's dive into it. Um, Terrence, Mann, uh, alive, dead. Um, does he go into the corn to become a writer again? And, And perhaps in this, this, this fantasy world, he comes back to write about what heaven is like, or this was him coming to his resting place and at peace with his life page go first
3: yeah i think it's more the latter i mean obviously there's a lot of symbolism there with you know h- him carrying on the journey to a, a new you know like he, he's done writing about the world and now it's time to write about the new you know uh, undiscovered country on the other side of the cornfield there um but i you know i, I and, and whether or not he's he dies or not, I don't think obviously is the important thing. Uh, I, Cause I, all, part of me thinks, well, has, is he even alive the whole time? I mean, there are ghosts in the movie that, you know, uh, that, they, that Ray talks to, like they're, they're sitting next to him the whole time. I mean, it, there is a possible. The only thing that makes me think that's not possible is that they, there's a newspaper article saying he's missing, but you know, it could be that that character really was, you know, never fully in reality anyway. You know what I mean? Like he, he's, he, he, too, is a ghost of the past.
0: Yeah, Mike, go first, and then I w- I'd love to hear Andy's, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, just real quick, I think, is there any better sequel in the making than you know Terrence Mann going in the field and that, that story of what corn? happens? But I think I'll just leave it this as an open-ended hypothetical. I think the bigger question is, is Ray dead? Is he dead throughout the course of this? Ooh. This is all him in heaven? So I think that's actually, to me, the more interesting question.
0: Andy, uh, I want to. Oh, we're gonna come back to that one in a second. I just want to hear Andy Terrence Man alive or dead.
2: I mean, I think he's, I think he's passed on. But it is just, yeah, he's he's moving on to his who is, to his next great thing, you know. And and uh, it's I, when when Kevin Costner, you know, hears build a baseball field, he doesn't really have to build the bleachers, but you know, he does because what is baseball without people to watch it? But what is it without without a sports writer? You know, or like, I'd like to know who that why they chose that umpire to come back you know to uh-huh. to touch that game um it's uh and yeah i mean it's and it's not just you know the 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 afterlife cynically building a, a bigger baseball infrastructure but it is what uh it is what's a part of the spirit of the whole thing I know,
0: when i was younger i thought um my general thought was that uh this was going to be like they were going to begin selling tickets. And for the first time ever, people would be able to see the ghosts of the past play the game that they loved. And that Terrence Mann would come back and be sort of the forefront of writing about this revolutionary pocket opening up in life. But as I've gotten older and I continue to watch the movie, I am sort of beginning to lean more towards this is Terrence Mann finding his resting place to be at peace with his life. And when you meet him, it's almost like he is in purgatory of upset, disgruntled, the thing that he loved to do is kind of taken away from him, kind of not by choice, but sorta by choice as well. And by this journey, he gets to not only rediscover his love of baseball, which is like his childhood and his innocence, but also rediscover the passion of his love of writing. And so the fact that he would go off to heaven to write again would be him, be him at peace. Now, Ray, Ray being dead is a very interesting one. I don't know if I can go there fully because there's a lot of things about, I mean, yeah, I guess it would be the sort of the same argument of a soul and rest, right? Like, because we don't really know exactly what Ray's career was before he became a farmer, but let's just take a guess and say that it wasn't, the most amazing thing or the most thing that he was passionately driven about in life and then does become a farmer. And it's definitely, as you said, Paige, earlier, middle life crisis sort of twisting in the wind a little bit and sort of trying to figure out what that reason is. And obviously the, the problems that he has with his father are weighing on him so heavily that it's almost like he can't move on with his life or he, can't, he doesn't know how to be a father and doesn't know how to be a man because he can't move on from that particular area. So I do think that he's alive, but there's, I mean, I, I hear you, Mike. It's kind of a really interesting, um, theory, um, page hop in.
3: Yeah. I mean, to your point, it's just, you know, it's the basic story of like, not basic, but a story of a guy who would rather than live in hell, he builds heaven, you know, and he builds, he builds his own heaven on earth. And, and in a very, and obviously the, in the movie, it's a very literal thing, but you know, the symbolism of that, of, of a guy, uh, you know, who's there's a lot of this in that movie. A, a, a guy who's not at peace with his existence, so he picks up his boots and puts on his gloves, and he builds heaven. You know what I mean? And I think that you you nailed it on the head with that, Joey. Well, there's a lot there's
0: a lot going on there too, as well, because you know, for him, what makes the end of the movie so powerful isn't just like, "Dad, do you want to have a catch?" It's the first the first one is that when he asks for the second time is this heaven he goes no it's iowa and he looks around and begins to realize that like his life and his happiness was really like right in front of him this whole time right and it doesn't matter whether he's some farmer and it doesn't matter about his own guilt or his own expectations and all this other stuff it's about kind of realizing that and then moving forward when i think one of the most powerful lines in the movie and it just because it sells the concept so well is that he asks his own father is there a heaven you know like he's so guilt and ridden by the pain of a father that he barely knew cuz the father worked so damn hard and for people that have fathers that work hard that don't really know them very well emotionally you kind of just always just like are they okay like oh, when are they ever happy when do they ever smile and he's sort of just asking is there a heaven to see like hey like are you okay and when he says oh yeah you know what i mean like it's, <laughs> it's, you know it's such this confident uh, delicious line reading that he sort of puts on it that not only makes the audience member think that that anything is possible, but also sort of, I and mean, that's the easing of the pain of knowing that like his dad is okay. He can move on with his life. He has his own happiness right here in front of him, whatever he's chasing or running away from or being guilty of, or whatever it is can all sort of like be can all be let go in that moment, you know? And, um, there's just so much going on in that final scene beyond just, you know, a, you know, a father coming back from the dead to have catch. Andy, looks like you want to hop
2: <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering, like, you know, we were talking about uh, secrets and everything and, and, and um, just, yeah, Kevin Costner and, and, and um, John Kinsella, you know, they're introduced to one another and, and everything. But then when, then, then Costner says, Hey dad. and, yeah, you know, uh, Dad knows he's dad the whole time, and uh, you know it. it it's kind of. I, I wonder if that, that was can
0: admit to ourselves.
2: Yeah, or
0: it's, it's like of... yeah, or
2: just or just respecting respecting his son's boundaries. Like maybe he's not ready for this. You know, Oh well, you know, hello, it's nice to meet you, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, let's. Yeah. Uh, And and
0: and obviously a relationship that wasn't built on anything emotional, right? We get that message pretty 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 clearly early on in the film that they never were able to talk about anything other than just um, you know being able to enjoy the ritual of playing catch together, and that was when they sort of whatever understood each other for two seconds in their lives. And that's a great point because I didn't think about that either. Like again, till the very end of the movie, there's there's that moment where they want to keep that secret from each other, like they both kind of know the truth, but they're so afraid of it that they would almost would rather let that moment pass them by than confront what they probably know deep down inside. And apparently, Hey, Dad, do you want to have a catch is not in the movie. It was, Hey, do you want to have a catch? So if you go back and watch it, you'll notice they cut to the father walking away and the dad line is in that cut of him mm. walking away. So it was actually dubbed in um, just more based on a clarity issue. I don't think anyone, I think they really, they felt confident that that was getting across, but I don't, it's one of those movie things where it's like, you know, we've crunched the numbers and they're not going to know it's his father unless he says it. Like, <laughs> you got you to break it across. Um, we're running out of time guys. So I want to hear, um, some final thoughts or maybe some fun facts and, you know, uh you know I I watched this movie a couple of days ago so I've cried within the last 48 hours. Um I don't know about the rest of you guys. This movie gets me um every single time. Dude, every single time. Uh Rudy gets me about 80% of the time, but this movie is 100% and I'm not a big crier. I don't know about you guys. Paige, go ahead.
3: Well, I just feel like after I've seen this movie so many times, the, you the foreshadowing of the moment at the end. The little moments leading up to that, you know, like I, I find myself crying just thinking about the ending before it even happens. You know what I mean? And uh, our conversation really never touched on something that I want to throw in real quick. And that's how freaking awesome Ray Liotta is in this movie.
1: Oh, my gosh. You're
3: right, he, he has that otherworldly thing behind his eyes, you know, and he's so calm and his, the little half grin on his face, you know, that he, ha- that he that, you know, when, like he knows something that you don't, but he's just going to let you figure it out. And uh, Mike mentioned a little bit before of just that, that first monologue of, like, man, I would have played this game for free, you know, and, like, staying in hotels. And the way that he, the baseball just kind of bubbles up out of him and his love of it, Raylio to freaking nails it. I, I just wanted to throw that out there before yeah, we turn to of this off.
0: Uh, I feel terrible that we, we probably haven't gotten to him uh, any sooner. But, yeah, that face of the tough old ball player that probably paid for peanuts. And then, yeah, that monologue is so wonderful because wouldn't that be shoeless Joe Jackson's heaven to just play the game yep. that he loves forever, yep. over and over, day after day, just yep. shagging flies. And, uh, and to your point as well, when back to that moment when Kevin Costner is like, let's see if you can hit my curve. Ray Liotta's face does not move, and yet somehow you can get the sense that he's saying, yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, bring yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, And yet, you know what? Maybe two, maybe muscles in his face move.
3: Yeah, um, yeah he gives, He's just like, huh. like, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I act- can hit your curve, right? Yeah, But acting- if you get acting- it over your plate, you don't.
0: Acting beyond compare. And then, uh, yeah, when he yells, "Hey, rookie!" Um, before he even says, "You were good," I'm, I got a lump in my throat the size of an apple. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah, obviously now we know the moves a little bit coming a mile away. But um, even still, uh, yeah, great, great, great performance. And one of the few roles where Ray Liotta's a good guy, right? Yeah. I mean, he's a good guy. Yeah. A lot of people think Shoeless Joe Jackson did not quit, did not uh, cheat. So um, a rare turn of performance from him. Andy, um, final thoughts, um, tidbits or facts maybe that you think that we might have missed. And, uh, yeah, and then just, you know, you can talk really about your tears
2: just like on a personal note, like, yeah, I was, uh, I was so moved by Ray Liotta's speech, you know, about like smelling the grass and, or you ever put a, a ball or a glove to your face and to the point where I was the kid in the outfield in the little league game balls going right by him. Cause I'm just like <laughs> baseball, you know? Um, and, uh, but uh, I just, Every time I watch this movie, I I, I, I fall apart the minute Frank Whaley, who also, another person who's great in this movie, like, you know, he he hits that that white gravel line, and then he does it, then he goes back, and it's good job, good job, Doc, you know? It's like, you're a hero to your heroes, and then that that final validation. Yeah. And just, uh, and I, yeah, it was documented that not everyone got this, that this was divisive, because there was a... Film reviewer for Time magazine who summed it up with quote male weepy at its wussiest. <laughs> that, was, that was his his final judgment on on Field of Dreams. Oh, I'll,
0: see, I'll see that dude in the corn. Yeah, Rolling Stone called it one of the worst movies of nineteen eighty-nine um at the time. <laughs> Peter Travers, Whoa. who's always spot on. Uh talking about batting averages, he's always ten for ten. So thanks for that, uh, Peter Travers. And yeah, the um The Frank Whaley coming back and turning back into Burt Lancaster is so interesting because you just begin to realize that in this weird moment, uh, you know he didn't get a chance to actually fully fulfill his dream, but he got one more taste of it. And if you get one more taste of the water, like that's good enough for me. Go ahead, Paige.
3: Well, real quick, he just he had there's that scene when he he gets the sacrifice fly, and then and everybody's like, yeah, good job, kid. And he sits down, and Costner's looking at him. And with this, you know, sort of this like pride in his, and then the kid looks over at Costner and just has that little smile. And like, it's just like, man, that was the coolest thing, you know? And it, and it happens that his dream happened right then. And he's just, you see this kind of sense of him trying to contain it, you know, but he's just having the best day.
0: And also incredible Moonlight Graham never gotten a bat in the major leagues. Uh, In this fictitious game, when he gets to play again, he still doesn't have a batting average. (laughs) (laughs) Oh wow! He doesn't have an official at bat because the pure fairness of the game of baseball does not count a sacrifice fly. Eagle eye, eagle eye, great eagle eye with a triple zero batting average. Um, Mike, uh, final thoughts, fun facts, tidbits, stuff that we missed, and uh, you know, talk to me about your tears.
1: I mean, uh. Speaking of monologues, guys, uh, buckle in, Um, buckle in because I I got a a lot to say. I mean, um, you know, this movie to me is 100% about fathers and sons, right? Um, Because it really doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you fall under with your own relationship, right? Whether you're super close or you have a strained relationship like, you know, like I had with my father. I think think the nicest thing I can say about my dad was that he wasn't around much, Um, you know, Whatever end of that spectrum we fall under, I think we can all relate because it's a complex dynamic, right? It's a complex dynamic and it helps form who we are for both good and bad, you know, that relationship. You know, that's who, you know, at least in our early years or lack thereof, that's who we judge our manhood against. That's who we judge, you know, this idea how true or false it rings, what it means to be a man. Dad was that, that, that first marker of that. And so you know, to all those people, Joey, who said that, you know, that that they don't get choked up at at the ending of this movie. I'm going to say right now, you guys don't have a soul if you don't get choked (laughs) up in this movie because whether it's nostalgic and that helps you recall those moments in your own life when you had that opportunity to have a catch with your dad or unfortunately like mine, never having that opportunity. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, if you can't relate to the yearning for that, whether you've had it or not had it, I mean, it's, yeah, your soul is dead. Um, on a lighter note, it's, uh, for this movie, it's kind of this idea of life really did imitate art, right? They kept the field going, and, like, I think uh, annually they, they have over 60,000 60, visitors who come to that field every year uh, to have a catch, just have a catch. It doesn't, they don't need to see ghosts on the field. I'm talking real life people who go there just so they can go in the outfield and throw a ball with their son, with their brother, with their friend. Um, yeah, it's a pretty amazing experience. And the, and the saddest thing, um, in regards to baseball that, that this COVID-19 has had an impact on. Uh, I didn't realize this, but they were set to play a game. The White Sox were going to play the Yankees in yep. August on a field, it, not the original field. They built a field uh, next to the original field that the movie was shot on. But, uh, yeah, that they were going to play a real baseball game, like literally life-imitating art. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing that it still to this day has that much of an impact. Well, I was,
3: I was going to talk about that. He, he got it. He got it. I was going to say, yeah, they were going to have a baseball game there. And I, and I think they still will. Why wouldn't they? I mean, it's just a, a question of when, you know what I mean? And how many celebrities are going to be sitting at that park, you know, like with those $200,000 tickets or whatever they're going to cost. Them. Yeah, I, yeah. We've
0: just spent, uh, we've just spent the last 90 minutes talking about um, not just about life and dreams and everything, but uh, also a little bit about the love of a game of baseball a game that I love very much. And unfortunately, um, owners and players right now are haggling over prorated pay, which personally, uh, I'm on the player's side in this. I think it's absolutely pretty much ridiculous. We already are in the situation that we're in. There's already less games. There's already money leaving the gate. There's already going to be losses that are going to be taken. So why don't you just pay these players at the prorate that they deserve to be paid for every single game and just bring the game back because honestly, like, baseball and sports and things like that i know that they're not going to solve the world's problems and i know maybe sometimes they do feel like unnecessary distractors to larger things going on in the world but i don't know man i could sure use that distraction right now and i could sure use just being having that opportunity to talk about you know just a game or something and just have it sort of galvanize us in some sort of sense because there is another part of me too as well all these people that are you know, just completely destroying each other on Facebook and can't get along and stuff like that. I mean, I think a lot of those people might like, like some of the same sports teams and may or may not have high-fived each other in a ballpark after a home run or a three-pointer or a touchdown or something. And it's so funny that I don't even think people kind of realize that a little bit. Um, and there is sort of something to that. It's, you know, I think that we definitely need to learn to all, uh, bring more kindness and understanding more quality to our world as well but i think that we're completely forgetting that you know we've all we all used to hang around each other you know all the time you know what i mean and i think we're, we're destroying each other right now on social media just because we can't be around each other and i hope sports can maybe sort of i don't think bridge the gap but maybe get us a little bit closer to cross that bridge so um guys hey, thank you so much thank you so much for joining um one of my favorite movies of all time classic Um, You know, I don't know if it's quarantine, but quite cried harder than I have in in several years watching the film. So really, really, really happy you guys were able to come on. Very, very grateful. You guys all brought up great points. And um, and we'll be back soon. This was Believe in Betting Chicago. My name is Joey Christopoulos. This episode was brought to you by BetOnline.ag. This was part two. and We got plenty more from the Chicago Sports Movie Podcast series coming up. Got a couple more coming this week and a lot more coming next week, too, as well. So make sure you stick around for that. And I swear I will talk about real sports again whenever it arrives back at our doorstep. <laughs> Until then, though, uh, be good, be kind, be good to each other. Have a great day. We'll talk soon.